Hey everybody, welcome to the official Screenwriting Podcast, episode number 35. I'm Adam Levenberg. This week I'll be sharing some thoughts on Grand Budapest Hotel and Sabotage, completely spoiler-free by the way. I also have a new feature for you called Client Corner, where I'm going to pull out one or two examples from consultations that I do that week and share them so that we can learn some really general rules about screenwriting and also some thoughts on the indie film phenomenon, God's Not Dead. I have some ideas about why this film has become such a massive hit. It's probably going to make about $50 million at the box office, and it's possible you haven't even heard of it, so I'll be talking a little bit about that. But first, announcements. Some really big news. It's not yet confirmed, but I'm going to share it here anyway. It appears that Shane Black will be joining Ryan Engel and I at the Great American Pitch Fest discussing action screenwriting. As you may be aware, Shane Black is the writer-director of Iron Man 3. He is the writer-director of one of my favorite movies ever, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. And he is also the legendary screenwriter of such tiny films as Lethal Weapon, The Last Boy Scout, and The Long Kiss Goodnight. So, of course, I'm incredibly excited about that. And, you know, hopefully that will come through. It's not on the schedule yet for the Pitch Fest, but if that's something you're interested in doing, going to the Great American Pitch Fest, go to pitchfest.com. Last week, I mentioned a great podcast for screenwriters. Well, my favorite entertainment podcast for anybody interested in film is called How Did This Get Made? And they are doing one of my favorite movies ever. Now, the format of How Did This Get Made is that each week the panelist will watch a specific movie and then take notes on it and come together and talk about it and basically shit all over it. Now, in some cases, the films are completely horrendous abortions of cinema, like the last one that they did called No Holds Barred with Hulk Hogan, which is truly appalling as a film. And a lot of fun to watch. This week, they're doing one of my favorite movies ever, Color of Night. If you've listened to the podcast, you've heard me talk about this film, please, please, please go and watch it. You can watch it at a bunch of places online for $2.99 or hint, hint, go to Google and write Color of Night full movie and you will be able to watch it streaming online completely for free. I recently watched some of it at Put Locker. And it is a really fascinating film. It's a lot of fun at the very least. And I think that it's going to be a film that is just going to be destroyed by these people. But hopefully they'll appreciate the performances. They'll appreciate the incredible framing in the cinematography. If you're a young film student, you have to watch the films of Richard Rush, including Color of Night and The Stuntman, because he uses some of the most intricate and creative framing of shots that you could ever see. And a lot of these are practical effects that you would be able to capture inside of a camera or fake digitally while giving the effect of having crafted a shot that's incredibly complex. So I I recommend that you check out Color of Night before you ruin it for yourself because it has one of the great film twists of all time. Now, I actually put together a background of the film for the host of that Uh, podcast, How Did This Get Made? I put it up at my website, officialscreenwriting.com, because I spent about 15 hours talking with the director about his entire career, but about four or five of those hours were spent covering Color of Night, and there's a lot of fun trivia that people aren't aware of that was never written about anywhere else. So if you are a fan of the film or if you watch it and want to get some more background, uh, you can go to officialscreenwriting.com. I may even throw up some more articles on it over the next week because... 
gosh, I did an 80-page paper on the director's filmography, so I happen to know quite a bit about that film. Moving on to Grand Budapest Hotel, it's certainly not my favorite Wes Anderson movie. I'm not going to give anything away, but the interesting thing about it, you might remember in my book, The Starter Screenplay, I suggest do not use framing devices. They are really, really hard to get right. A framing device is where you start Usually later in time, you have an older character who's looking back and telling somebody this story, and then we dissolve back into the past. Films like Edward Scissorhands used a framing device. A League of Their Own used a framing device. Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan both used framing devices. And there's a really good reason not to do it. It wastes a lot of page space where you need it most, which is in the setup. But the the real reason is that it's rarely done well, and it often requires roles to be recast, which I think creates a real wedge between the suspension of disbelief that we have watching an actor who we're aware of becoming a character, and then we have to do with another translation usually, or we're watching that same actor in old age makeup. And for those of you who who have seen Color of Night or will be watching it, Putting an actor in makeup is a very, it's a very dicey proposition. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It's amazing when it's done well, but when it's not, it can create problems inside of your movie. And instead of going with the story, you're more or less judging the effectiveness of the old age makeup job. So the thing about Grand Budapest Hotel is that Wes Anderson is, of course, one of the finest filmmakers alive, and he has chosen to use a not a double. I thought I was looking at a double framing device. Thinking about it, it's actually a quadruple framing device. And this is the kind of I could call it a thought exercise put on film, but he manages to string together all of these frames in order to tell the story. And none of them are incredibly important. He's just doing it for the sake of doing it. So the film starts out with a young girl and she opens up a book. And then we go sort of inside of what she's reading to see an older Jude Law. He's not he's actually played by a different actor at that point, which, again, is part of the problem with, I think, framing devices in general, which is that sometimes you have to recast the role. And then there's a lot of translation that goes on. So I believe that Tom Wilkinson plays the older Jude Law. And we see him with his grandchildren, and he starts talking about the experience that he had hearing about this story that he ended up putting into his most famous book. And then we flash back to him as a younger person, now played by Jude Law, who's arriving at this hotel in the middle of the Alps called the Grand Budapest Hotel. I believe it's in the Alps. At this hotel, he meets the hotel owner, played by F. Murray Abraham, who invites him to dinner and then tells him the story about how he became the owner of the hotel and all of the crazy things that happened when he started there as, say, an 18 or 19-year-old lobby boy. So then we flash back to that experience and we see the young lobby boy and there is a murder mystery that goes on at the hotel. So we've now jumped four different times for very little consequence. And I think it's important to note that one of the things about framing devices is that sometimes they'll come in and out. In a movie like, I believe, Saving Private Ryan, we only see the older Private Ryan at the beginning and end of the film. 
But it, especially in biographies or bio, biopics, you'll see this used where we'll actually keep coming back so that they can reframe events and jump through history. And in this case, they don't do that. So it's just sort of a clever way of doing very little. And that's essentially what this film is. The central item of the Grand Budapest Hotel that you probably have seen in the ads, if you haven't seen the movie, is a cream puff. And that's essentially what this movie is. It is a delicacy that melts in your mouth and has very little substance to it. And I, I think that Wes Anderson sort of understands what he's trying to do. He's not trying to say anything. This is, this film is, is a lark. It is a cream puff. And he actually accomplishes sharing his perspective on that by making a cream puff. One of the central items of the film that returns at various points inside of the plot. The other thing that I saw was Sabotage with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now, for those of you who have seen David Ayer's End of Watch, you know that he's a pretty terrific filmmaker. He also wrote the film that Denzel Washington won an Oscar for Best Actor for, Training Day. And in this case, he's dealing with a very complicated plot. So in the case of sabotage, the element that I'm reminded of from my book is know whose perspective your movie is being told from. I'm going to give you the quick plot of sabotage because I'm sure many of you haven't seen it. The story is about a badass DEA SWAT team run by Arnold Schwarzenegger. At the start of the film, we see them raiding a drug cartel kingpin's house and he's got in the basement a stack of money similar to what you saw in breaking bad it's about five feet by five feet cubed it's just this massive stack of money probably a hundred million dollars there and the swat team steals 10 million of it shoves it into the toilet and that night they come back in order to get their money and the money is gone and they don't know who took it but they're pretty damn sure that somebody on this team took the money the story becomes about not who necessarily took this money, but very soon members of the team start getting killed off. And a detective who's a local police officer is assigned to the case, played by Olivia Williams, who you may remember all the way back from such great films as Rushmore, The Sixth Sense, and the not-so-great film The Postman. So Olivia Williams comes in as the detective on the case, and she is now forced to figure out why these members of the SWAT team are getting killed off. Now, we already know all this backstory about them. So a lot of the stuff that she's discovering are things that we already know. And again, you might be asking, well, is she the hero of the film? Well, she actually comes close to getting the most screen time as a hero, but I believe the film is a good 20 to 30 minutes in before she ever sets foot on screen. So you can't really call her a protagonist. You can't call her the hero of the film. Is there a hero of the film? Well, it's not Arnold Schwarzenegger either because he's the head of the SWAT team, but he's more or less under investigation. He's more or less a potential villain than he is a hero. And what you're left with is a film completely lacking perspective. There are some good things about it. It's made by a very talented filmmaker. But I, I would suggest that it's something you can learn from if you're a new writer because your job is to be very, very, very clear who your hero is, what their goal is, how much time they have to accomplish it, and then to track in each individual scene the tension, obstacles, and conflicts that come their way. And Sabotage does not work inside of that formula. If you're David Ayer and this is the movie that you want to do, terrific. Uh, more power to him. Let him go and do something a little bit different. But if you're a brand new writer, it's not the time to read reinvent the wheel. So in terms of sabotage, the thing that we can remember is 
know who your hero is, know what they're up against, track their obstacles, conflicts, and the tension that they find in pursuit of their goal. So a client of mine got in touch this week to let me know that he has gotten his script requested by over 12 management companies out of about 50 emails and letters that he had sent out, which is just an astonishing hit rate. I mean, in my book, I talk about all of the different ways that you can get your script requested by management companies. And he followed these rules. I, I don't think you're doing anything wrong if you follow my instructions and get a smaller response than that. I'm even surprised by 12 responses. But the thing is that now these companies are starting to pass on the script and he is, because he has the means to do it, he is now getting some more coverage. He has gone to a couple of different people for notes and then he sent me all those coverages and notes and hired me to take a look at what all those other people said and to look at the material and decide what could tactically be done in order to do a small rewrite that addresses some big things. So while we were talking, he asked me, once I'm done with this rewrite, can I go back to these management companies? And the answer is probably no. If you have had a script requested and a management company just flat out passes on it, you probably don't want to go back with the same piece of material. Now, of course, it's a very different situation if a person calls you up and says, hey, this isn't something I can do anything with, but I think you're a great writer. And here are some things that I would be interested in seeing you address, and then I'd be interested in reading it again. So if they say that they're interested in reading, if they call, you know, that's one of the ways that you can tell that you're really on the right track as a writer. That wasn't the case here with this script. So in the case that people have passed on your script, I wouldn't necessarily bother them with, hey, I've done these new things because the changes that he's making are relatively minimal. They might feel big and it might take a really long time for him to do, but that doesn't mean that he is fundamentally coming back with a different script. And remember, your version of a fundamentally different script is probably calculated differently than what they would see as a very different script. So in the case that a management company or an agency has passed on your material, don't go back a month and a half later and say, hey, I have a totally new version. If they liked your script, They'll request, they'll request it. They'll let you know that they want to hear from you again. And if you have a new script, feel free to reach out to those people and say, hey, I've learned a lot. You requested my script last time. I would love to send you my new script. This is what it's about. In this week's Client Corner, I want to talk about making a plot twist or a specific moment visual because that's a really important thing. I'm sure you've heard show it, don't say it. That, that's something that I really wrestle with when working with writers. I always try to find a couple of things in the script where they explain way too much in terms of dialogue, and I suggest a specific visual way of representing that information. In this case, we're going to talk a little bit about a buddy cop film where the mentor is the hero and the young protege turns out to be the antagonist, turns out to be the villain. It's a very big plot twist. And the protege's personality doesn't change much from before the twist to after the twist. She's always relatively cold, very competent, but also cold. So one of the things that I suggested was that this character should be a little bit more eager and happy to be there. She's new on the job and expresses excitement about getting to be a police officer. But we also want to make the twist visual because later on in the script, we find out that she has an ulterior motive. She's working for a different government agency. 
And I think that the important thing to do here is say, okay, how do we make it visual? How do we just not make this a conversation? So what I suggested, in addition to having her personality shift a little bit more, is to give her something physical to do as a representation of her eagerness. And what I came up with was give her a notebook. Have her asking questions about doing the job. You know, part of being a young protege is learning. And we want to have the audience feeling like this character is young, eager, to, happy to be there, eager, and that she's trying to learn from the hero, from her mentor. So we'll see her asking questions and then scribbling things down in her notebook. And we want to keep referencing this notebook at least two to four times throughout the script where we see her just writing something down. Maybe at some point she leaves the notebook in the car and as she's leaving, her mentor picks it up and it says, hey, you forgot something and hands it to her. And at the point of the twist, we see the notebook and we see that all these times she's been scribbling things down, all this advice he's been giving her, she's just been doodling. And again, we could we could settle this thing in a conversation. We could learn about it through dialogue. But why? You want something particularly visual. Think of the end of The Sixth Sense, The Ring. The Ring gives it all away. Uh, before we jump into a flashback, which is going to explain things for people who might not put A, B, and C through Z together. So finally, I'm going to talk about God's Not Dead. This film is headed towards a $50 million box office gross, which is about half of what Noah's going to make on probably a budget that's about one one hundredth of what they spent on Noah. And the interesting thing about this film is that it satisfies one of the things I talk about in my book, which is that your hero should be on a little bit of a fantasy mission. Now, of course, this is not a fantasy like Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones. This is a fantasy of wish fulfillment. Freud said that all nightmares are actually representations of wishes. It's a very interesting thought exercise to engage in after you've had a nightmare to say, well, what is it about this situation that I might have asked for or wanted on some subconscious level? In the story of God's Not Dead, it's so incredibly clear what's going on here that I, I think I'm just going to share with you a quick summary of it, and then I'll talk about what I think is happening with this project and why it's become such a huge hit at the box office. So here's the summary. Present-day college freshman and devout Christian Josh Wheaton finds his faith challenged on his first day of philosophy class by the dogmatic and argumentative Professor Radisson. Radisson begins class by informing students that they will need to disavow in writing the existence of God on that first day or face a failing grade. As other students in the class begin scribbling the words, God is dead on pieces of paper as instructed, Josh finds himself at a crossroads, having to choose between his faith and his future. Josh offers a nervous refusal, provoking an irate reaction from his smug professor. Radisson assigns him a daunting task. If Josh will not admit that God is dead, he must prove God's existence by presenting well-researched intellectual arguments and evidence over the course of the semester and engage Radisson in a head-to-head -head debate in front of the class. If Josh fails to convince his classmates of God's existence, he will fail the course and hinder his lofty academic goals. With almost no one in his corner, Josh wonders if he can really fight for what he believes. Can he prove the existence of God? Wouldn't it just be easier to write God is dead and put the whole incident behind him? God's Not Dead weaves together multiple stories of faith, doubt, 
and disbelief, culminating in a dramatic call to action. This film will educate, entertain, and inspire moviegoers to explore what they really believe about God, igniting important conversations and life-changing decisions. I think it's obvious why this film has been so successful, which is that for the religious conservative audience in America, it reaffirms some of their pre-existing beliefs and reinforces the way that they see society at this point in time. Now, again, let me say that I'm not trying to say somebody's right and somebody's wrong, but I will say this, that when you have shows like Hannity or Rachel Maddow on the left that reaffirm what you already believe, it makes you feel good. Whatever your belief is, if you're going, and and that's that's the difference between a lot of these cable news channels today and what we saw in the past, where the news channels programming often simply seeks to reinforce things that we already believe or that they believe their audience already believes. So in this case, it's a couple of really big ones that you'll hear. I guarantee you, if you watch Fox News within 24 to 48 hours, you will hear somebody complain about higher education being elitist and that higher education is anti-religious in an organized way. This plot is all about that. Now, here's what I think is so wonderful about this concept. You know, this movie is not for me. But I, I think that it's so amazing because it uses a lot of tools of cinema in order to deliver a product to religious conservatives that they're just foaming at the mouth for. The first of which is day one. This isn't halfway through college or third semester of the second year. This is day one. Our hero, a Christian conservative, walks into class and is told, you better write down God's not dead or your future is going to get wiped out. I mean, it's so on the nose. And yet, remember, being on the nose like that, you really cinema likes that. It likes the immediacy of things and it likes the bigness of it. It likes that his it says here in this summary that his academic career will be permanently hindered if he doesn't just go along with this thing or if he fails. The second thing that this story does is it gives us a villain. Notice that in the summary, it says a smug and argumentative professor. The professor wouldn't have to be smug and argumentative in real life or in a book, but in a movie, you want to turn this person into a villain. And the way that you do that is by giving them a nasty personality. The third is that it's a David versus Goliath story. You have a kid on the first day of college going up against a tenured college professor, somebody completely on the other side of the spectrum. And that's something that cinema likes. Remember, I mentioned Training Day earlier. It's a guy on the first day, not the 37th or 376th day. There's a reason for that. It just makes for good cinema. And the fourth thing is that this story takes something which is incredibly abstract. And by the way, I believe if you're somebody who is not only a true believer in God and your faith, but also likes to get into arguments about it, then that's a really frustrating thing because you really can't prove anything. Personally, in my life, I don't like getting into arguments about God and religion because I don't have very strong perspectives on it. What I do have, though, is I'll often discuss with people, well, where does your belief bleed over into your understanding about how you think society and our government should function? Uh, for example, this week I read that in Mississippi, 76% of high school students graduate 
as non-virgins, they have sex before graduating, but they're having a lot of trouble getting any sort of sex education into the schools because they believe, apparently a lot of these school boards believe that it's somehow against God to teach kids about their bodies and about sex, even though 76% of them are having it in high school, and that pharmacies often in rural areas will not sell condoms to teenagers who want to buy them. Um, and often these are teenagers who are 50 or 100 miles from the next pharmacy. So is a pharmacy allowed to operate and do that and make that choice if they want to be a public business? I think those are interesting questions. Definitely off on a tangent there. So I'll get back to God's Not Dead. The thing that this story does is it takes this very abstract thing where the hero feels put upon, feels that his beliefs are not being respected and finds a concrete way in the form of this debate in order to make his point be heard. And he gets to go up as a David versus Goliath up against a villain. But finally, he gets to stand in front of his community and win. And that's a really big deal, that you have this debate. Again, it's taking an incredibly abstract idea and bringing some form to it, that he's got to win a debate against somebody who's much better than him. There have actually been a bunch of films that are about debates, about debate teams, about Listen to Me with Kirk Cameron was one of them, which actually was an abortion movie uh, where he argued a pro-life point of view. I can't imagine a studio releasing a film like that today. But in this case, we have a guy who's a young student on the first day who stands up for his beliefs, and this film figures out a way to make him the hero. And the, the thing that's so amazing about it is, of course, this would never happen. No professor is going to say on the first day, I need you to write down on a piece of paper, God's not dead or I'm going to fail you and your GPA is going to be fucked forever. It could never happen, would never happen. That guy would probably be fired. And I believe that if that person had tenure, they would probably just be ostracized inside of their university because it's just such a ridiculous thing to ask people to do. And of course, most professors probably believe in God. About 95 to 90 percent of Americans believe in God. Maybe that number is lower with professors. It's not that much lower. So it, it again, speaks to reaffirm what these people believe about big, bad industrial uh, uh, higher education, and it provides our hero with some very specific elements that are taken directly from what makes a movie work. First day, David versus Goliath, a smug and argumentative villain, and physicalizing something that is so wildly abstract, which is the argument about whether God exists or not. That's all for this week. I'm Adam Levenberg. You can buy my book, The Starter Screenplay, for Kindle or in print on Amazon.com. And hey, go to my website, OfficialScreenwriting.com, where you can hire me to read your script or to talk to you about your concepts with a concept consultation. I'll be back next week with a new episode. Thanks for listening.